me, Andy Brownell, on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. And I'm very happy that today is the day we get to talk to the superintendent, Kent Pickell from the Rochester Public Schools. Hey, good morning, Kent. Morning. It's great to be back. Yeah, and we have tons to talk about. Not enough time to talk about it. I guess to start with, I'm going to throw this one at you right away. Last week, the Minnesota Department of Education released, I guess it's the first data that we have on student performance statewide since the beginning of the pandemic that gives us, I don't know, a picture of where we're at now, a snapshot. And it, uh, I, I don't know if I can use the term unsurprising, but it was disappointing. I imagine that, that the, the proficiency levels dropped significantly over the past three to four years, I guess. I'm just going to throw it to you, Kent, and maybe your response to what we're seeing. Um, I see the data that came out on our state test last week as baseline for the work that I'm really excited to be doing in the next at least three years here in Rochester. Um, They are reflective of what happened last year when I was here in an interim status. And more importantly, we were still very much in the midst of the pandemic. And as you said, they do reflect um, I wouldn't say dramatic decline, but they 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 reflect a decline since really the 2018-19 school year, which is kind of the last point from the pandemic. And uh, as you said, that's not good. Um, we need to begin to dramatically raise student achievement for students in all categories in Rochester public schools. I think most urgently those students who are scoring in what we might call level one of our state tests. That's the lowest level of our state tests. And 31% of our students district-wide scored at that level in math last year. And that was, excuse me, uh, 38% uh, scored at that level in math. That was 29% before the pandemic. And that's headed in the wrong direction. That's not to say that those students are gonna be the only focus of our work going forward. We also wanna accelerate the achievement of our students who are academically doing really well, but that's an urgent priority. And the strategic plan that the school board approved in June is entirely focused on beginning to shift that. The only other thing I'd, uh, I'd mention is that we do have in Rochester and across the rest of the state, a growing trend of students, especially at the high school level, but also at the um, middle school level to some extent, opting out of those tests. And so we have to actually factor that into the fact that it's not necessarily a universally valid assessment because if you don't have some of the kids taking the test, it's not necessarily a measure of uh, all of Rochester Public School students' performance. Um, I guess they probably were worse than I anticipated. Is that, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I guess we're in the spectrum of where things could have been considering what went on during the pandemic. Were you, I guess, were you surprised at all? No, they were about where I expected they'd be. They really were slight declines from, you know, where we were on the whole in the aggregate. And um, we really did not have last year and certainly the prior year before I got here, we did not have a really, I believe, powerful and clear strategy in place to improve student outcomes. And so I really see this point going forward as uh, a starting point for the work that we're going to be doing. Okay. When, when are the tests administered to the kids? Well, we have some flexibility. And this year, actually, unlike what we did last year, when schools just chose when to give them, we're actually going to have a uniform testing window. Um, we're looking right now at March. It could go as late as April, so spring. And okay. we're going to do it more in a more coherent and concerted way across the district this next spring. 
So the results that we saw last week from MDE, were they from the tests taken in the fall? Yeah, they're from the tests that were taken in the spring, the prior spring. The prior spring. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why the MCAs are a really problematic measure for improvement purposes, because you get them literally after the kids are out of your class. So if you are a fifth grader and fifth grade teacher and you're teaching and then you get your fifth grade math and reading scores for the MCAs, by the time you get those scores in August, those students are no longer in your class. And so that's a good reason of why we say the MCA test is about the system, not the individual student, because the kids are actually gone from your classroom by the time you get those results. We, this month, relaunched an entirely redesigned school improvement process in Rochester, and we are going to shift from doing our school improvement planning in August, which has been the historic norm, and in my view is way too late, to starting it in January and concluding it well before the school year ends, when the school board approves the budget and the staffing patterns, so that we go into the summer with very clear plans for improvement the following year, and we've built our budget and our staffing plan around those improvement plans, rather than approving the budget and the staffing plan and then doing the school improvement plan in August. So you can see we're trying here to get the process in, frankly, a more kind of linear common sense flow, which is not magically going to suddenly have every kid, you know, achieving at high levels. But I think if we don't do that, we don't have the arrows pointed in the same direction. And we know, given the complexity of the issues we're trying to help students and educators address, the system has got to be clear and it's got to be uh, it's got to make sense. So that's the transition that we're going to be making over the year ahead. All right. Well, when you mentioned that they were done last spring, that, that's the first I mean, the kids were just being reintroduced to the classrooms last spring. They were. So, and, you know, we had been out for where we we didn't actually ever close the schools for reasons of spread of covid. We had to do it for two weeks because of staff being out. We couldn't staff our lunchrooms and our right. So we were out for two weeks, and so that did happen, and we, of course, had other challenges, including significant mental health challenges for some students. And so, yes, we do need to look at those test results that came out through that lens. That said, I'm a believer in the fact that some people I I, I talk to and certain con- commentators nationally suggest that standardized tests measure nothing. I think that's really dangerous. They don't measure nothing, but they don't measure everything. And they're one measure and they're actually highly accurate at the ends of the distribution. For kids who do really well and kids who really struggle, the tests tell us quite a lot. They're problematic if you're gonna have one point and call it proficiency and say a kid below that point is not gonna do well in the workplace or post-secondary, or a kid who's two points above that point is gonna do great. That That is where the testing of the last 20 years in American education has gotten to be a theater of the absurd. But if a kid is scoring at level one on those MCAs, we know they're gonna struggle. And if a kid is scoring at level four, we know they have a pretty good chance of succeeding, assuming they took the test relatively seriously, um, which I think most of our students do at the elementary level and also middle school. High school is another story for us right Right. now. Right, yeah, I can imagine. I I mean, I guess I'm that far removed from it, but I guess if you are, in 11th, I, when I was in 11th grade, if you presented that to me as voluntary, odds are I was good to do it. Yeah, in our school improvement strategy tied to the strategic plan in Rochester, we're not even including the high school MCAs as a measure of school improvement. We're using the ACT test, which is still the vast majority of our students take the ACT, whether they want to go to a four-year college or not. The state pays for it, and it's actually just also a better test. Um, it's not perfect because it's designed more for a four-year college, but if you are prepared 
and do well in the ACT and then you decide to go to RCTC or to a technical school or right into the workplace, um, I think it's still a good measure of student learning at the end of high school. So that's why we're building that into our strategy rather than the Minnesota Comprehensive Assessments at the high school level. May I one more question on this subject before we take a break? Seen as knock on wood, I guess I better say, we're hopeful that this school year will be a bit more normal than the past two school years. Does that give you some confidence that the scores or the achievement levels for these kids may improve rather quickly? Um, I don't know if we can say really quickly. That's a really, really important question. They need to improve. I think there's very good reason to believe that the strategy that we're putting in place is going to lead to that improvement. But um, it's also clear that over the course of the pandemic, really the last, in some respects, three years, and definitely the last two, we have students who did miss fundamental bodies of knowledge and skill. And one thing we know from a lot of research is that if you move a kid on and they don't fundamentally understand those core concepts, they can't fake it and they can't access the curriculum. They can't access the language in you know, an English class. They can't access the um, arithmetic or the algebra in a math class if they're lacking those fundamental concepts. And so one of the things that's gonna be a priority for us in the school year ahead is to really identify with precision where our students are and where we have to actually fill in some of those gaps in learning and of course, the challenge of doing that is that we're doing it at a time when we're also trying to uh, move students forward with what they're supposed to be doing in fifth grade. So there's the fifth grade curriculum, but if you missed foundational skills from third grade, we need to address those before we can expect you to access the fifth grade curriculum. And so that's going to be one of our big challenges for the year ahead. So I don't mean I wish I could give you a more ringing answer to that question, but that's the tension that we're going to be very focused on in the year ahead. Where are our students lacking some of those foundational competencies and how do we make sure we fill those in so that we don't frankly have cohorts of students who are year after year after year struggling because they have big gaps in their knowledge and skills. Yeah, I think that's what people are concerned that that could be happening hopefully not here but elsewhere in the country because it's not it's not unique to the Rochester public schools this is happening throughout the nation yeah and our system that of course was designed long before the covid pandemic is predicated on this idea of grade level standards and grade level assessments and if you are two three or more grade levels behind the content you're supposed to be learning this year is not the most relevant content for you because you're missing those foundational sure. pieces. And so that's the issue. We, we were focused on that to some extent last year, but I think we're in a much better place to uh, move that furniture in the year ahead. All right. Superintendent Kent Pickell from the Rochester Public Schools with us this morning on Rochester Today. And we'll return in a moment on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. If you or a loved one has been seriously injured in a car accident. Mr. School District, I'm Andy Brownell. It's News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM and Rochester Today. So months and months and months ago, you began this discussion with us about cell phone usage by students. And now, now there's been some movement on it as we head into the final days before the school year begins. Maybe you can explain... Kent, 
what I don't know what to term it. What guidance is that the term we'd use for cell phones? It is almost guidelines is what we're calling it. Um, and that's just because school district policy is a very specific thing that has to be written in a certain way and have three meetings. And we may get to a point where this may become a policy issue. Right now, we want to be able to be flexible and rapid and try some stuff and learn from what works. I think the main thing I would say, Andy, is that this is part of a larger strategy that we're calling our belonging and behavior strategy to make sure that our schools are safe and they're focused on learning. And you and I have talked about some of the other components of that strategy. The cell phone piece grew in importance over the last year as we moved that strategy forward. It initially was not a top tier issue. And then we started to see really two things happening. One, of course, the cell phone as distractor the constant pinging and snapping and texting that frankly is part of modern life, but that is really an impediment, especially to the developing brain from focusing on learning. Uh, I think I've shared with you, there was a teacher at Mayo High School who actually freed her students up to just accept any kind of message or ping that they got on their phones for one class hour, and then they carefully graphed it all. And the cumulative results were mind-blowing as you looked at what the stimuli that had been going into that one class for one hour for those students. So the first issue with cell phones is the distractor piece. The second is that we do have some instances in which cell phones are an amplifier of bad behavior. You have kids that are going to actually post on social media, uh, a bathroom that gets vandalized or a fight that happens. Sometimes, frankly, they aren't even in Rochester schools, but it's posted as that. But it often it often is. And of course, that uh, that broadcasts it to other students and that can have a spillover effect. So this started to emerge last year and we wanted to be pretty cautious about it because we also know cell phones are a core feature of modern life and they also do a lot of good things for students socially, emotionally, and educationally. Um, We heard from some parents who said, ban them, get rid of them. We heard from others who said, no, wait, um, I need to be able to reach my kid. My kid needs it before school, after school. Um, And then some teachers who said, I actually use these devices for learning purposes. There isn't a lot of that because we're at a point now where every student in Rochester Public Schools has a tablet or a computer. And so they're not reliant on their personal cell phone. So long story short, we brought people together for a summit initially in June and teams from all of our secondary schools. And then over the summer, we refined a new set of guidelines that are being sent out um, right now, in fact. And what we're gonna try this fall is really a red zone, green zone strategy. And so there's gonna be certain places in our middle schools and high schools that are always red zones, like bathrooms and locker rooms, um, where you never have a cell phone. And then there'll be certain places that are almost always or always green zones, like you know cafeteria or the hallways during passing time. But that in an individual classroom or in any setting in the school, the teacher has the responsibility to designate, is this a red zone or a green zone? And when it's a red zone, your cell phone is away. And there are consequences articulated for use of a phone in a red zone. One of the things that I think is really key to have this happen, though, is teachers do need to have some green zone moments. If what this becomes is it's all red zone all the time, I think we know how students are going to feel about that. I think if they understand that we need you to put that phone away while we're in class, while we're engaged in an assembly or something like that, but there will be a green zone period. Um, I'm hopeful Uh, we're going to launch this this fall and we are going to assess it uh, not too far into the new school year through feedback from uh, students, parents and educators. And some stuff's going to work and some stuff, you know, may not work. 
I'm much more enthused about this approach than going into the new school year, either with sort of a free-for-all, use at any time, or a complete ban, which um, I think would have taken us back to the days that existed in American schools really a decade ago of constant battles over student wearing students wearing hats, but it would have been times 100 with the cell phone. And so I would rather focus on teaching and learning than the cell phone battles. So we're going to try the red zone, green zone approach. It grew out of leadership from our schools. We're supporting it from the district level, and I will be glad to let you know how it's going when we <laughs> okay. do the next one of these. So an individual teacher during their class period could declare the first 45 minutes of class red zone time. Yep. And maybe at the end of the period, okay, yeah, green zone. This grew out of the fact that we've had individual teachers and some, to some extent, individual schools trying pieces of this. So this isn't like just a crazy thing we thought of in the Edison building. We had people, you know, experimenting with uh, these ideas. And then we said, okay, we need to make this consistent because we are kind of a big, small town. And so what they do at Kellogg does influence what people think at John Adams, influences what people think at Willow Creek. And so... Uh, we're, that's why we're going to have a district-wide strategy, and um, we, we'll see how it goes. Is there a consistency on the consequences? Yes, there is. There's a consistency on the consequences. And the consequences are, I, I don't have them perfectly off the top of my head, but they are a gradation of consequence, starting sure. with a conversation and reminder leading up to potentially a significant disciplinary consequence for a refusal to put that phone away in the red zone. Back to the old days when you got your yo-yo taken away and put in the desk drawer. It's exactly that. I will just <laughs> tell you, and I know, Andy, you and I, we have to be a little careful about being kind of old guys who remember the old days because we're in a different world. And in many, oh, sure. ways, many ways, it's a better world. I, I will say we do have parents who regularly call their kids during class oh, oh, on oh. their phones unapologetically and fully believing that it is they are entitled to call their kid during class on their phone and who when we have teachers and administrators who explain you know you can always call the office that's kind of how it happened forever or your 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 student does have an email address on a tablet um we do have some parents who push back against that like i i, I need to reach my kid when i need to reach my kid i, I don't want to overstate that I couldn't quantify it but it's it's regular like you hear it regular so we are going to need we are going to need parents and caregivers to understand that when we have your student in class they are there to learn we we know you want them to learn um, and you know cell phones going off uh, especially when the student then says to the teacher it's my mom well, you know it's hard for the teacher with a class full to say I don't care if it's your mom put it away because the kids saying it's my mom, you know, and so we need to actually have our have our parents and caregivers be on board with us uh, with this shift. Um, for some of us, that's a head scratcher that you'd call your kid during class on the cell and expect them to be able to talk. It happens regularly, and so there's there's culture shift on a number of fronts here that we need to make. This is one of those situations where I do not envy the classroom teacher. No, they have more challenges than when I was teaching <laughs> when I was teaching high school in the 90s I can ever even imagine oh. and they handle them with uh, really incredible skill and a lot of compassion okay so we'll check in with you later to see how this is working out 
Stay I, tuned on the cell phone. Well, it seems like a decent plan. I hope it works. That's all I can say. Yeah, me too. <laughs> the superintendent is with us this morning. Rochester Public Schools Superintendent Kent Pakel on Rochester Today. We'll return after the news break. I'm Andy Brownell, News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. A DWI will cost you about $10,000. It's Rochester Today, News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. I'm Andy Brownell, and the superintendent is with us, Kent Pickell from the Rochester School District. I imagine this week is extraordinarily busy for you and everybody else in Edison and all the other buildings, but we're down to just over a week before everybody comes crowding into the classrooms. And this is going to be an especially, I don't know if chaotic is the right term to use, but I imagine it will be because you've got all these new school buildings coming online. Yeah, I would say eventful. Uh, eventful, okay. Chaotic. No, it's looking good. We're excited. I had the uh, opportunity to welcome 127 new teachers to Rochester Public Schools this week uh, out at Century High School. We had them meeting, of course, incredible energy, some nervousness on the part of those folks. Um, our enrollment uh, is looking good in terms of our budget projection. We budgeted for 17,642 students, and we actually have 17,647. So I want to, you know, thank those few extra students or the family that is there. But it, we will have some shift between now and the actual start of school, for sure. Because some families who've moved don't tell us they've moved. Some families who are coming in, but that's good news at a time when enrollment K-12 is nationally declining to be where we were with projection is good. And as you say, we're opening three new buildings, uh, Dakota, Longfellow, Bishop. We've also done major uh, redesign at John Marshall this summer. And there's a bit of a race to the finish line to get all of those things in place. But our facilities folks tell me uh, we're gonna get there. Um, we're, we're struggling with some staffing issues like most every employee employer, but some interesting progress. We're actually doing knock would pretty well with uh, bus drivers this fall, especially compared to last year, but uh, uh, licensed school nurses, education support professionals, special education teachers, those are some real challenge areas and we're we're leaning in hard to those. Um, and we do want the community to know, we, we have a real wait list, about 208 places when I checked on our school-age childcare, the before and after school, which we know is key for a lot of families. We are working like crazy to fill those slots. Once again, we are in the state with the lowest unemployment in American history. Um, and so filling those jobs, like like all jobs, is not easy. But we want people to know that we are working really hard to open up those slots because we know that's really critical for working families. But we also want to make sure we have appropriately skilled people working with our students. Um, and we've redrawn all the attendance boundaries in the whole district. And so transportation patterns for about 12,000 kids are all different. And um, we are gonna get them from point A to point B, but we're gonna be traveling some very different routes between point A to point B. So that's looking good, but that will be a work in progress up to and through the first weeks of the school year. Wow. That's all. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even mention academic stuff. You know, that's really our day job. But right now we get kind of focused on the operations pieces. And we're really trying to start the school year with a huge emphasis on relationships, connection, belonging, so that our kids are really feeling like, yeah, this is a place where I can be and become my best self. Well, you rattled off a list of positions that you're looking for people to fill those positions. Have you had to adjust wages at all to try to, I guess, match up with the lack of workers? As it happens, we are in negotiations with 
the unions that represent every one of those areas that I mentioned right now. Um, we have concluded, since I've been in Rochester, uh, good contracts with our teachers and our administrators. And so now we're working with maintenance, clerical, uh, nutrition services, uh, a whole array of education support professionals. Obviously, we want to do as much as we can for our employees. We also need to make sure the district is uh, on a path to sustainable structural balance. We have done some uh, uh, bonus pay for hires. We did that last year and it had some success. One of the things though that was a predictable but still a lesson learned was if you're only doing bonuses for your new hires but you're not providing bonuses for your current employees who are staying with you, you're actually, uh, you're not being fair and you're also creating a flight risk. And so it was interesting, we began shortly after I got here with doing some essentially signing bonuses like 500 bucks and then for new employees or new hires and then we said, wait, we gotta do this for our current folks. So we negotiated every one of those with our unions. Um, the thing about that is that only goes so far. That's one-time pay. So like I was, last weekend I was in at the park at the back to school event and I talked to one of our education support professionals and she just said, I love this work, I love the kids, it's tough work, but I love it. She had recently left the district for reasons of uh, the wage for her and her family and I understood it and I said, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna do what it's gonna take to get you back. Um, and so obviously we have to do that through negotiations and we have to be prudent, but um, we know folks need a sustained livable wage to do the great work they do in Rochester Public Schools. And we are very much right now in the thick of trying to land the plane on those negotiations to, to, to get this done. Do you have any idea how many positions you have open heading into this last week before we have classes resume? You know, the last count, I can tell you, I could try off the top of my head to add these up, but I actually don't think about them in the aggregate because the positions are really uh, different. So we sure. actually, 89 education support professionals, 5.6 licensed school nurses. Like we don't really have a point six <laughs> person, but we have a point six position. 13 elementary special education teachers and like related service providers. Um, nine secondary, meaning middle and high school, special education teachers and service providers. So like those are the specific numbers that last time I checked, I'm okay. worried about. Um, you know, with 3000 employees, those are in some ways not huge, but when you're in a building and one of those positions is missing or more of them, uh, right. it has big consequences. So we, we, we know that that's, that's really critical. Wow. And in the, in the current marketplace, I, that's going to be a challenge. Yes, it would be really helpful if uh, Mayo Clinic decided never to hire somebody <laughs> in Rochester Public Schools for me. So I would, I think that's the least that uh, they can do. I'm kidding, of course. Well, I mean, you're not the only employer in town who has, I that, know, has I know. said I, that. I, I, right, exactly. And of course, I, we're, I'm totally kidding. We know people have to make the right decisions for their families, but um, that does create a challenge for those of us who are part of the ecosystem around our clinic, um, but don't have quite the resources that the clinic has. You said that very diplomatically. <laughs> well, I want them to be our friend. <laughs> I think they're pretty well aware of what's happening, but uh, yeah. tell you what, um, oh, yeah, one other question about the school year. Obviously the cell phone guidelines will be different. Um, building spaces will be different. Are there any other things that the students themselves will experience that will be significantly different than previous years this this time around? 
Yeah, well, you know, last couple of years, we have not had to charge for any lunches because it's been covered by the federal government tied to the pandemic, which was a great idea. Um, that They've ended that for reasons that, you know, are understandable. Um, absent the money, you can't do that in perpetuity. They have given districts that have managed their food service funding, which is different than the general fund dollars it pays for teachers and textbooks and stuff. They've given districts that have managed their food service funding uh, sufficiently well to have a surplus, the authority to make breakfast free for every student. We have managed our food service fund very well. And so we are able to make breakfast free in Rochester for the year ahead. They haven't yet given the authority to make lunch free. So we're going to have to charge for lunch this year. And uh, interestingly, during the pandemic, because we didn't have to charge, we didn't have anybody to punch in kids numbers in the lunch line. So we had to rehire all those positions of people who actually do that very important work. And we do want families and students to know that if you don't qualify for free and reduced price lunch, you will have to pay. We have very modest prices that haven't been raised for a long time. And so um, that's a change that's out there. Um, it's also important to just briefly say the uh, Rochester Public Schools gets a significant amount of money from the state of Minnesota based on how many free and reduced price lunch, uh, students who receive free and reduced price lunches we have. And so it is so important for our families to fill out that form. And last time I was on your show, Andy, you may not rem you may remember, I didn't know off the top of my head how much money. Oh, that's right. I was supposed to remember to ask you, you that. You didn't, but I, I, I was <laughs> so frustrated. It was nine, it's $9.8 million oh, for okay. this year. Last year it was $7.4 million that we actually ended up with. So all of that comes based on the number of low-income students we're privileged to serve. And we can't collect that money unless we can validate that they are low-income, mostly by the family actually signing a form. But now... We're starting to be able to, based on recent federal policy, uh, count families that receive um, Medicaid uh, as a way to actually baseline that, which is great because uh, we just want to serve the families that need it nutritionally. All right. Uh, well, all I can say about the school lunch program is if somehow we could package the old square pizzas that we used to get that we could roll up and and put that in a food truck you could uh, that could be an entrepreneurial opportunity it for could. food service we have a number of great things in rps we made some like thousands of enchiladas this summer during our summer of discovery in partnership with a rochester area restaurant that i can't believe i'm blanking on the name it's super well-known mexican restaurant they were amazing and i was like we need to take this on the road and have like our <laughs> food trucks around the community because they were great all right, with that, we'll take a break and we'll come right back with more of the superintendent of Rochester Public Schools, Kent McKell on Rochester Today. News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 This is the Family Service Rochester Mental Health Minute. KROC AM and 96.9 FM. And uh, time is running short as always with the superintendent of Rochester Public Schools, Kent McKell. I did say, uh, see a piece that the online school that... Yep. has been operational for a time now um it's going to be taking winona students is that correct yeah we're pretty excited about this when i got here in uh the summer of 2021 i was pleased to discover that we did have a relatively small uh online program that was just serving elementary students so you know students in grades k through six and we made the decision pretty quickly that we needed to expand that to middle and high school last year because of the pandemic and it really took off in terms of enrollment within Rochester. 
We have since that time seen some fall off in our elementary enrollment of Rochester families in RPS Online. I think because a lot of families want their youngest children to be learning in a place-based setting. The middle and high school piece has continued to have really strong enrollment within Rochester, but we think we have great academic content, great teachers. The teaching is all what we call synchronous, means that you're actually with a live person, live teacher on the screen, live classmates. And so we actually want to grow it. And in some discussions that I had with Annette Freiheit, who's the superintendent there in Winona, we, she said, you know, we, we, want, we have a subset of our students who want to do more online, but frankly, we don't want to lose them as our students. We want to have them be able to do sports, extracurriculars, and maybe, you know, a class here or a class there. So those students in Winona, based on Minnesota law, they always could have enrolled in RPS online. And we do have a handful of those students who are from other places in the state and they just become full RPS online students. Um, and which means that the dollars that they generate never go to their home school district, they come straight to RPS. But if a school district wants to still partly serve their students, but doesn't want to create a whole online program, we wanted an alternative. And so the way this works is that Winona pays us a fee for part of that student's education. They still receive the core general education funding and are able then to maintain their connection to those students. And so I think it's going to be a really intriguing model to see if we can build out. Because frankly, a school district doesn't have an incentive just to tell kids to go somewhere else and enroll in somebody else's online school. But I think school districts that don't want to create something like RPS online, which is not a simple thing to do, and want to serve their students in a limited number of classes or extracurriculars or both, could be very interested in the kind of partnership we're going to pilot with Winona this fall. So that's yet another interesting evolution of our online school. So the economics of this, I imagine it could work out well in your favor if you have open slots within our, yep. amongst our students, you have the capacity to take on outside students with almost no additional cost. Yeah, the open slot piece is key because last year there were periods, I mean, RPS Online last year, um, still very much in the midst of COVID, was bursting at the seams. And we had a lot of families that wanted their kid in there. We just couldn't hire teachers, you know, at that point. We're in a better place with that this year. We think we do have capacity. And so no Winona student is bumping a Rochester student who wants to go there. We are still able to serve those Rochester families that want to be at RPS Online. But yep, exactly as you said, it could be a net gainer for us as we build that out. And I think, frankly, not only do we have good content uh, in that very new school, Rochester's got a good brand. And I think actually, if we do it right, we can have we can have some real um, some real traction. They, they, the school, through its own um, very collaborative process, uh, chose a mascot and a logo, and they are the RPS Online Chargers. Okay, well, that works. It does, yeah, car charger. So they're really trying to create culture from within uh, that online school. That's interesting. The, the kids, that's how they communicate nowadays. It's, yeah. it's a different world. And it's to, to me, it's still alien. But the idea of socializing online is the norm. So I can see yeah. that working out very well. Yeah, it is cool. When we had the new teachers here last uh, this week at Century High School, there was somebody who actually used to live in my neighborhood in St. Paul, and she came and said, hey, I'm going to be teaching English in, RP, uh, in Rochester this next year. I said, would you guys move down here? She said, no, I'm teaching in RPS online. I'm still <laughs> in the old neighborhood, but I'm going to be a full-time teacher in Rochester. And wow. I said, I like that. that. Yeah, it is. Well, I'm doing the show with you remotely as well. So it's the, the new way of the world a lot of ways. I think we're going to see more and more of this. 
I did want to, we have an election coming up. And obviously a lot of focus on the Rochester School Board elections this time around for a variety of reasons. Do you have any any comment regarding elections? Uh, obviously, I have no comment on the substance <laughs> of this election. I will be pleased to work for uh, and with whoever the citizens of Rochester uh, elect in November. I will say, I, you know, I get a lot of emails and talk to people around town. I think a not everybody fully understands how the superintendent and the school board sort of fit because I periodically get people ask me when I'm running uh, for the job or I also get people ask me who I'm endorsing um, and uh, the school board sets the direction and the policy for the school district and they are seven people who have to run and get of course elected and then they hire the superintendent and usually give them a multi-year contract. In my case, it's for three years. And then the board really owns the governance piece and they pay me to work with uh, our staff to bring that vision to life. And so I obviously pay great attention to those issues and am entirely separate from the political discussion that our community is going to have. I will just say as a former high school social studies teacher who used to teach this stuff, whatever your perspective is, I hope people will vote um, because that's how you have a vibrant democracy and that's how we work through some issues that are out there. But um, I won't be I won't be making any other statements uh, on the All election. Right. Well, as far as your position, and you've told me before off the air that there, there are people who have a little conf- bit of confusion about your role. Um, is there a way you could describe your position that might clarify that better? I think it's not entirely accurate because it, it sort of it sort of oversimplifies things, but but a way to think about it is the school board says our goal is to get to this place and my job is to drive the bus to that place. And I don't get to choose which place. They get to choose which place, and then my job is to drive it to place. Now, if I decide personally that that's a, not a place where I want to go, which is not the case, I, I could, get, I should get a new job. And if the school board decides that I can't drive that bus well enough, they should get a new superintendent. But that's kind of the reason I say that's oversimplified. Is is certainly uh, in Rochester today, we don't have a sort of simplistic division uh, of labor in which. I don't feel that I can have a full dialogue with our board members about the direction of the district and that board members also don't feel that they can ask me questions about the details. Sometimes that happens in school districts where they're trying to say, wait, the board is just policy. They can't ask the superintendent anything about curriculum or bus routes or finances because that's that that's superintendent's job. I think that's a false dichotomy because we all know the devil is in the details. Like you can have a beautiful vision of every child learning at highest standards, but the ability to achieve that comes down to the curriculum, the teachers. the. So I think for the most part, we get that balance right, though it's always a temptation. I'm sure there are moments where board members want to call me up and say, Kent, this teacher is making people mad about something happening in this class and I want you to do something. Right now, all they do is they flag that issue for me. And they just say, here's something you should know about. And then and then it's my job. I let them know how I handled it, but I don't feel that they are, I guess the term would be micromanaging. Sure. Uh, and I'd hope whoever gets elected in Rochester, we would continue to have that division of labor. I believe in 
public control of public schools. And so I think that board role is a critical one. I also think that people who are part-time board members can't, and in my experience, don't want to have to make the trains run on time. So there's a there's a, a division of labor there that when it works, I think it works well in the public interest. All right. We have to run. I told you we would run out of time sooner All than right. I wished. I appreciate you spending this time with myself and our listeners, Kent. Uh, it's it's always very informative. So thank you again. It's always an honor. I always come out of it with some uh, some ideas for things I can do better. So I appreciate it. Well, goodness. Okay. Well, Kent McKell, superintendent of the Rochester Public Schools with us this morning on Rochester Today. News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Individual rates, coverage, offerings, and savings may vary. Subject to terms and conditions.